This week in the news about the pastor in Colorado who was charged with running a $3.1 million cryptocurrency scheme. He had been encouraging everyone in his congregation and others to invest in this worthless cryptocurrency scam. And, and then some of the money that he used was used, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars was used to remodel his home. And even after being, being charged with this, his answer was that God told him to do it. In fact, he said, yes, a few hundred thousand dollars went to home remodel project because that's what the Lord told me to do. Oh, how wonderful that God would tell us to do things like that. Uh, what an extreme example of claiming God is saying you ought to do something. Most of us have that issue as is God leading us here or there, but it's usually not that blatant, not that self-centered. And why he's still holding to that, I, I, I can only guess. But the questions are valid. Uh, how do we make decisions? How do we know if the Holy Spirit's telling us to do something or if God's impressing on us some direction, some decision, some wisdom, discernment that we should use? How do we, how do we know? What are we listening to? How do we include the body of Christ in our stories? How confident can we be that the Lord is directing our lives and helping us to make choices that he would want us to make? Sometimes it's easy. You know, don't steal, don't lie, don't start a cryptocurrency scam. All those things are really clear, but oftentimes it's not. It's tests that it's not a sin or not sin issue. It's like we have two choices to make. You know, I think I, I, think I know which one, but God, I want you to tell me, and God's just not telling me, so I need to make that choice or I need to understand is this God or is this me wanting this and saying that it's God uh, I've been there I, I've had many many failures I'll share one of them with you many years ago I was doing mediation and pastoral counseling full-time I was also pastoring a part-time a church out in central Missouri so I would drive there every Sunday and and preach a small congregation in a rural community obviously and we would meet in the middle school gym cafeteria combo and have church, and I enjoyed it. But an opportunity came to my across my path about a vacancy at a church in a large city in another state, and it was really a an attractive pastoral position. And I made an inquiry, and they said, "Yeah, we would like to talk to you." And I got involved in the process, and. Then they, through a little bit of the initial process, they said, yeah, you're one of the three people that we really want to consider for this role. And they said, we want you to send a video of one of your sermons. This is 20 plus years ago. So videos of sermons was not as readily available as it is today. I had a few videos from some sermons, but I thought, you know what? There's a guy in this little church that I go to on Sundays in central Missouri who brings his video camera every week. So I hatched this plan, and you probably see where I'm getting off track. I hatched this plan. Instead of using one of my old sermons, why don't I make one that will land me this job? So I, I wouldn't have explained it that way, but that was exactly what was going on in my heart. 
So I made sure as I wrote that week's sermon that the exegesis was spot on. It was the best. The stories and illustrations that I included in that message were gripping, they were relevant, they were fresh. I made sure that the points flowed without being too clunky. I worked hard to make sure the closing was aimed at the heart and would help people to know Christ and to know what God wanted for them. And I got to church that Sunday and the guy who video recorded the message didn't come. And I was like, all right, thank you, Lord, for helping me <laughs> to get my attitude adjusted, to realize that I was doing this all wrong. What I wanted so much to be what God wanted for me ended up being more what I wanted in the moment. So I sent an old sermon in, didn't get the job, actually was blessed by that. It was the best thing that could have happened. But maybe you've been there. Maybe you've had similar experiences where you've wanted something and maybe even at the beginning, it's like, all right, God, would you lead this? Would you help me to see this? And then, then your own agenda outpaces what God might be sharing with you. And then you get in a mess like I was. Or maybe it's a matter of discernment. No clear path, you're choosing between good options. Situations that feel really good. I've talked to people a lot about, I have a job opportunity, do I take it or not? And how do I know God's will? And is God going to give me any special leading in this? Or do I just make a choice? And if I'm not sinning, then I'm doing okay. Well, the section in Acts that we're looking at today kind of surfaces this experience in Paul and his co-workers and the believers that we're going to read. Um, we left Paul last Sunday as he bid farewell to the leaders of the church, the Ephesian church in Miletus. And his parting words for them are really important for where we're gonna go today. So let's look at Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 24. And now I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me, except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. And then the first verses of, of chapter 21 describe the next part of Paul's journey. They sailed to the island of Kos, and here's a map that will help you to see this, then to Rhodes and Patera. It's really cool to know, by the way, if you've been with us this whole journey through the book of Acts, we are now at the end of the third missionary journey. We have, we have walked through as a church all of Paul's missionary journeys leading up to this, the end of the third missionary journey. Um, when they got to the, after the coastal towns where the smaller craft would work um, in Patera, they boarded a large ship, set sail for Phoenicia, passing Cyprus and Tyre. And then verses four through six tell us about their initial experience there. We went ashore and found the local believers and stayed with them a week. These believers prophesied through the Holy Spirit that Paul should not go on to Jerusalem. When we returned to the ship at the end of the week, the entire congregation, including women and children, left the city and came to shore with us. There we knelt and prayed and said our farewells. Then we went aboard and returned home. So their next stop then was Ptolemus, where they stayed for a few days before, for a day or so before sailing to Caesarea. And then, and there they stayed at the home of Philip, who was one of the deacons who the men were selected to help with the, the overseeing the food distribution program in chapter six. And it's mentioned there that Philip's daughters were prophets. He had four daughters and they had the gift of prophecy. And then we get to verse 10, 
And we read several days later, a man named Agabus, who also had the gift of prophecy, arrived from Judea. He came over, took Paul's belt, and bound his own feet and hands with it. Then he said, the Holy Spirit declares, shall the, so shall the owner of this belt be bound by Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and turned over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the local believers all begged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. He said, why all this weeping? You're breaking my heart. I am, not, I am ready not only to be jailed at Jerusalem, but even to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Then it was clear that we couldn't persuade him, or when it was clear that we couldn't persuade him, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Now there's so much to celebrate in this section. Arriving at Tyre, Paul found a vibrant group of Christ followers, a church that was thriving, that came to meet him. They probably didn't know many of them. He, he spent several days with them, teaching them, sharing Christian fellowship. This church probably came out of what we read in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 21, where we read, meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to the Jews. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began to preach to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. So this is a Paul was experiencing the fruitfulness of the mission of God going out in this area. But there's a challenge in this section. Some people have compared this section of Paul's third missionary journey as he's moving toward Jerusalem to that section in the Gospels where Jesus is moving toward Jerusalem. And you know that phrase we hear, and, and he, he set his heart or set his mind, or set his face toward Jerusalem. And there were people in Jesus' story who uh, were a little troubled, didn't want him to go to Jerusalem because of what he was saying would happen to him. And to be sure, there are some legitimate parallels made between Paul's journey to Jerusalem and Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. But what we find in Acts that's a little different and a little more problematic is that the voices of resistance or of concern in Jesus' story don't have something that this one has. And this, in the, the prophecy, the prophet's entire, it says that by the Holy Spirit, they prophesied, they said Paul shouldn't go. So there's a little bit of a dilemma here. We already know that in chapter 20, Paul, when he was addressing the Ephesian elders, stated that the Spirit was driving him to Jerusalem. And now in this chapter, we read the Spirit is saying through these Christians, don't go to Jerusalem. That's the dilemma. Now remember one thing, since we started studying the book of Acts, we've made it clear, this is descriptive and not prescriptive. Doesn't mean we don't draw principles, we do draw principles, but this is something that was happening as the church was being launched. So this is descriptive of what's going on, not necessarily prescriptive, but it does present us with a dilemma. And it's too easy, in my opinion, to just say, the believers in Tyre were wrong, they were mistaken, because Luke, Luke's a pretty careful guy, and he's a historian, and he's writing this much later, looking back on this scenario, and Luke includes that, and he doesn't qualify it as a, they misunderstood what the Holy Spirit was saying. He said, no, this is what the Spirit told them. In fact, after Agabus' prophecy in Caesarea, Luke writes, when we heard this, we and the local believers all begged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. 
So it sounds like Luke and the rest of the team were cautioning Paul based on what happened, that they were at least a little troubled by this and unsure of whether Paul ought to go to Jerusalem based on what the Spirit was saying. Now, there are some possibilities of what could be happening here. And we need to say right up front, we're not going to be definitive about what happened here because the text gives us a dilemma, but doesn't give us a resolution. So I'm going to share with you what might be some possible ways that we could understand this and then how we might apply it in our own lives here as well. But it's possible that the Spirit warned these believers in Tyre about what was ahead for Paul and their reaction to what the Spirit told them led them to urge Paul not to go. So by the Spirit, they could have been told that Paul was going to face persecution and be jailed. And their reaction to it was, Paul, don't go. That's possible. But it sounds like the Holy Spirit urged them to tell Paul not to go. So it it seems like there's something more to what they were sharing. A spirit-given message, we do have to understand, is always filtered, though, through a human being. A spirit-given message is always filtered through a human being, and we always have our own agendas, our own fears, our own brokenness, our own skewed view, our own expected outcomes that get in the way. So that's possible that that somehow could have got in the way and mixed up how they see this playing out. Now, if we say that about Agabus, Luke, and the Christians entire, I think we also have to say that about Paul, don't we? That, that Paul might have heard, this is what you need to do. You need to go to Jerusalem. And Paul might have somehow had his own expected outcomes or how this could get in the way, kind of somehow cloud this. The apostle Paul's desires, I'm sure, need adjustment just like anyone else. Everyone in this story has desires that sometimes intensify, modify, or qualify the message that they receive from the Holy Spirit. And the same is true for us. So it's helpful, I think, to break out. A binary thinking is always a trap for us in, in everywhere in life. I talk to people often in relationships about this. It's either this or this. Rarely is it this or this. Almost always, there's a whole spectrum of options here of what could happen. And it's helpful to break out of that and remember this verse from chapter 20 in verse 16. Paul had decided to sail on past Ephesus for he didn't want to spend any more time in the province of Asia. He was hurrying to get to Jerusalem if possible in time for the festival of Pentecost. So Luke describes that in chapter 20. It's possible that this might be a timing issue more than a yes or no, go to Jerusalem. That that Paul might have been urgent to get to Jerusalem by this time and maybe it wasn't as pressing for God that he was there by that time. It could be that the spirit given warnings for Paul had more to do with timing and manner of reaching Jerusalem rather than whether he would end up in Jerusalem. Why the urgency? The late Ray Stedman, who is the former pastor of Peninsula Bible Church in California, he came to this conclusion after studying this passage. He came to the deep conviction that Paul didn't need to go to Jerusalem as urgently as he did, and he didn't need to become a prisoner as he did. All he went through didn't, wasn't required to achieve that goal of getting to Jerusalem. 
When you read Romans 9, you hear the intense passion that Paul had for his fellow Jews. Could this have driven him to not heed the warnings? Our situation is similar. And there were other times where Paul wanted to go somewhere and, and in Acts, and it says the Spirit forbid, he was forbidden by the Spirit to go. So there were times when Paul wanted something and the Holy Spirit said, no, don't do that. Again, this is the dilemma. This is the dilemma. Now let's pull down from that dilemma to our lives today because our situation is similar but different because we live in a very different epoch or era in redemptive history. This story is incorporated into the canon of scripture with the authority and confidence that we attribute to God's word. We are not still writing that. God's not still writing that canon and putting it together. So in that, they didn't have the Bible like we have the Bible today. And when we're seeking to discern God's will, we have this book that is authoritative that's been given to us that we go to that gives us most of what we need to understand about God's will and how we live. And then there are in daily life many questions regarding God's will that sometimes take us outside of the specific direction and and instruction of God's word and we're left with, okay, what do we do with those things? Totally believe that today the Holy Spirit can and does still give impressions or speak to us or give application or help us to know what to do in certain circumstances. I have no problem with that at all. I've had times when I felt that the Holy Spirit has impressed on me some message. Now, what we do as followers of Christ is we go to the Bible and we, okay, is that consistent with what the Bible says? If there's any inconsistency, if anywhere it's contradictory to what God's word says, then I must not be hearing that right. If it's not, I can rest assured and, and be thankful in my quiet time if, if God brings somebody to my heart and says, you know, you need to call this person or talk to this person. Okay, I'm, there's no way to prove that, but I'm certainly not gonna deny that God can't do that and does do that. And we follow through on that and there's a wonderful connection and we can say, thank you, God, for, for impressing on me or leading me to do that. There's, there's nothing contrary to God's word that the Holy Spirit can't and doesn't interact with us in that way. In some cases, the Holy Spirit can give us directions or convictions like that, and I can interact with that. But it gets a little tricky when sometimes, and maybe you've experienced this, someone might say, this is what the Holy Spirit's impressed on me for you. You need to do this. Or we as a church need to do this. This is what all of us need to do. God's God's told me something for you or for all of us, to which we say, okay, okay. let me pray about that. Let me seek God and ask. And, and if so, may, maybe, because we certainly live in a community of faith, don't we? And so there, there is room for God to use you to help me to walk closer to Jesus. And if part of that is the Holy Spirit impressing on you or helping you to help me, I'm all for that. But then it gets a little tricky when the Holy Spirit doesn't tell me that. And Or if you're on a leadership board, we talked about our elders. One of the wonderful things about the elder board here at First Free or at a church, if it's functioning biblically, is it's very different than a corporate board in corporate America, isn't it? Because not only are we making sound decisions, but we're seeking to determine God's will. We're discerning what God's will is. And and I know because I've sat in many meetings like that where one person might say, I feel like this is what God's will is. And I feel like this is what God's will is. How do we we bring those together together? So I think we need a lot of discernment. We need to understand that we are 
trusting in God, which is what I wanna get to, because the text gives us the dilemma but no solution, at least no direct solution to whether it was Paul or the believers in Tyre. But I think there's a better solution. There's a deeper spiritual truth that we find in this passage that we need to understand. After Luke and all the other believers realized that their pleading with Paul was to no avail and he was going to go to Jerusalem, whether Paul was a little bit off or they were a little bit off or they were all a little bit off and it just didn't need to happen right now. In Acts chapter 21, verse 14, when it was clear that we couldn't persuade him, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. The Lord's will be done. Isn't it reassuring and so comforting to know that the biggest problem is not figuring out whether you're hearing the Holy Spirit or I'm hearing the Holy Spirit or, or I'm following this leading or I ought to do that or you ought to do that. The biggest thing is the Lord's will being done. And God's will is not gonna be thwarted if Paul went to Jerusalem right now or didn't go to Jerusalem right now. God's will is going to be accomplished regardless of whether they are hearing directly or hearing clearly from Paul or Paul was hearing clearly. The Lord will direct and ultimately accomplish his purposes in our lives. Sometimes we act as though our decisions and our choices and even our failures are sometimes locking us into something and even locking God into something. I talk to parents about this a lot when they're, they're struggling and maybe they made some realizing mistakes they've made as parents and they may even say that I just feel like I've messed up so bad as a parent and now my kids have no hope and and you know I, and I of course you messed up as a parent yeah I'll agree with you I, I have too isn't that what we do but but if if you messing up as a parent is so powerful that that keeps God from doing in your kid's life what he wants to do in their lives then who's God here you know in other words can can God not use even our failures to glorify himself and to accomplish his will. Or maybe if it's not a failure, those times where we don't hear him, but we think we do. I learned this lesson a hard way in my own life. 20 plus years ago, I was dealing with consequences of some really bad decisions and sin in my life and messed up relationship stuff. And I had blown past what God wanted in many ways in my life and was dealing with it relationally, professionally, spiritually, I was in a really rough place and it hurt a lot of people and had been hurt by a lot of people. That was a season that impacted my family and our marriage. That was when Sarah and I, our date night for, for many months was going out for dinner and then going to counseling. Has anyone else been there? It's like, wow, this is really a wonderful season. But during that, I was talking to my ther our therapist and trying to figure and sort through all this out, how I blew past God and what's God gonna do and how is he gonna do this right now? And he opened up a verse in one of our sessions and he put it in front of me. He said, John, I want you to read Ephesians 1.11. And Ephesians 1.11 says, furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God for he chose us in advance and he makes everything, everything work out according to his plan. That's a pretty global word, isn't it? Everything but I've messed up, I've hurt people, I've sinned, I've, 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 done, I've done some stuff that I shouldn't do. Is that beyond God turning and bending into conformity to the purpose of his will? But other people are gossiping about me, they're hurting me, they're saying horrible things, and, take, and, and well, is that beyond God 
taking and doing something to make it his own will. It doesn't mean God authors everything, by the way. But whenever we come to God in humility and repentance and we say, God, I think I, think I need to be reminded of your will being done. Isn't it reassuring to know you can never mess up too much? Isn't it reassuring to know you can never be too hurt? You can never be too damaged for God to take and bend into conformity to the purpose of his will. And then once it's bent into conformity to the purpose of his will, what is visible and what's seen? It's not, it's not whether it was Paul or the Tyrrhenian Christians who were right and listening to God. It's like, what amazing rest of the New Testament that Paul was able to write after he got to Jerusalem was put in jail. That's the story that we need to understand and focus on. So who knows what might have happened if Paul would have heeded the Tyrrhenians' warning, Agabus, Luke. The circumstances might have been different, but what we know is God would accomplish his purpose. And I wanna encourage you wherever you're at in your life, because you might be wrestling with that. You might be wrestling with your own choices. You might be wrestling with missing God. You might be wrestling with hurt feelings, relationships, with with patterns of sin in your own life. When we come to him and when we come with repentance and humility, God will take whatever we bring to him and will assure us and will accomplish his own purposes in that. So then Paul goes on in his journey and he next travels to Jerusalem and he goes to the disciples. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied him as he went to Jerusalem they were warmly greeted by James, who is a brother of Jesus, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and a lot of the other leaders in the church there. And Paul gave them a report about what God was doing. He likely gave them the offering that he'd been collecting because he'd collected this offering. We've been hearing about it all along this missionary journey, which is a little anticlimactic because it doesn't get much press in this story. But apparently he gives this offering Probably why it doesn't get a lot of press is because there's a pressing issue in the church in Jerusalem that they want to bring up to him. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna read this to you and you can follow along in your own Bibles. When, when they heard the report, they praised God and they said, Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law. They've been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children according to their customs. And in verse 22, they ask, what shall we do? They will certainly hear that you've come. So the, the Jewish Christians have heard that Paul, while he's out doing this Gentile ministry, were, was telling Jewish converts that they don't need to follow any of the rules or rituals or ceremonies of the Old Testament, no circumcision, no festivals. You don't have to follow that. It's not about the Gentiles. And it goes on verse 20, 23. Here's what we want you to do. There are four men with us who've made a vow. Take these men, join their purification rites and pay their expenses so they can, so they can have their heads shaved. And then everyone will know that there's no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we've written, them, uh, we've written to them that our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from meat of strangled animals. So again, it wasn't about the Gentile Christians because James even says that the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, that settled that. Gentile Christians, Gentiles who become Christians do not have to 
be circumcised, but they've been hearing that Paul's been telling the Jewish converts not to be circumcised. Which nowhere do we hear that. Now we do read in Acts and in Paul's letters, which he will write later, that he he definitely teaches there's nothing salvific in the rituals of Jewish tradition. There's nothing salvific in circumcision or in anything else. And so maybe some of that teaching has come back to them and it's been even enhanced that he's just dissing all of Jewish tradition. But the key phrase is, these believers in Jerusalem are zealous for the law. And so we find Paul again in a dilemma. It seems like the elders already had a solution. They wanted Paul to go with these Jewish Christians who had taken a Nazarite vow, uh, which is a extreme kind of expression of your piety and your, your commitment to God in, in Judaism at that time. And they were nearing the completion of the vow, which would have this ceremony where they would shave their heads and they would give sacrifices and, and go through this purification ceremony. And the Jewish leaders in the church wanted Paul to participate in that, to pay for it, and then to go through his own purification. Now, he was not going through a Nazarite purification because he didn't do the Nazarite plan, but there was another purification ceremony for someone who's been outside of Jerusalem, coming back to Jerusalem. So Paul was going to, was asked to participate in that. Now, imagine what a challenge that was for him because he was being asked to affirm the cultural practices of Jewish Christians because they had been offended by what they heard him say in Gentile context where he was saying Jewish cultural traditions don't have saving power. But if he goes through with this and helps and participates in these Jewish practices, I would think he would risk offending the Gentile Christians who he's been te- who've been hearing him teach that these aren't important. So this was the dilemma that he was in. And I think it's a dilemma for all of us when it comes to how we do culture, what we engage in in culture. And sometimes it's clear like this, or or when in December I had the privilege of going with another ministry to Nepal on a mission trip, and we were traveling through Nepal where, by the way, it's it's legal to be, be a Christian, but it's illegal to become a Christian or to influence somebody to become a Christian. And we, we had the privilege at one point on our trip of driving out into the jungle and then hiking one or two miles up into the hills where this river was coming down and forming a pool. And there were a group of 15 or 20 believers who were being baptized. And they had to do it quickly and they had to do it quietly because if they would have been caught, they would have been put in jail. And to see the power of the gospel spreading there. But we're talking to some of the leaders over dinner one night. And we'd been going through some of the towns. And they'd have shops with trinkets and all kinds of things. And, you know, very heavy Hindu Buddhist culture there. And I said, I could go into one of these shops, souvenir shops. And I'm, I'm certainly not going to buy a Buddha or something that's clearly an idol. But there's something called a singing bowl. That's just a brass bowl that you can rub and it makes a soothing sound or some incense, and, and I said, what would, what would it be if someone like me, a Western Christian, would come and buy that singing bowl, and to me, it doesn't have any religious power, it's just a kind of a cool thing, and you rub it, it gives a soothing sound, or I can burn incense, and it can keep the mosquitoes away on the patio at night, or some, some soothing aroma, and they were like, no, 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 that is, the purpose of those things 
in this culture is idolatrous. To purchase this would be to participate in, in worshiping this idol, and that's what has these people in bondage. Now, I could have argued all day long that this is just a bowl and that we have freedom in Christ and, and I'm not, I am not participating, but what we did instead is we said, we're not gonna buy that. We're not gonna buy that. We're always looking at culture and saying, okay, how are we influencing that? Where, where, is, our, where is participating in something acceptable and where is it not and why is it or is it not? We're gonna do this in a couple of weeks. I hope, hope all of you will come to the Chinese New Year celebration we're gonna have here. We're gonna celebrate Chinese culture and the gospel. And our Chinese Christian fellowship is a big part of leading this. And we're gonna, we're gonna be presenting the gospel. Now, there are some roots of some Chinese cultural practices that we would not do. But there are some that are totally acceptable in the context of what we're doing as we're sharing the gospel. But we always have to watch this. What Paul came to, it seems like, is he was going to be a Jew to the Jews that he was ministering with that day. And he, with good conscience, apparently went through with this purification ceremony so that he could affirm to them that it's not sinful to participate in these cultural practices, but that didn't violate his other teaching that there's nothing salvific about participating in those practices. So Paul went with the men and he participated in the ceremony of purification. So about that time then we learn in verse 27, a familiar situation comes up for Paul. Some of Paul's opponents stirred up the crowd against Paul. He claimed that he, they claimed that he was teaching against the law, defiling the holy place by bringing Greeks into the temple. They dragged Paul out, we're gonna kill him. The Roman soldiers came in and interrupted them as they were about to kill the apostle Paul. Amid all the commotion and the trumped up charges, they ordered Paul taken into custody. And that's where we're gonna pick up the story next week, by the way. So come back next week, we're gonna talk about what happens because Paul gives a defense of his faith next week that's gonna help us all to understand the power of story in defending the gospel. So we're gonna hit that next week. But before I pray, and remind, I wanna remind you of this section of Acts, which helps us to know the importance of discernment, wisdom, self-evaluation, authentic Christian community in hearing the voice of God. And yes, the primary way we hear the voice of God is as we study his word, as we look, as we interact with this. But the Holy Spirit, this is, this is a spiritual living book and the Holy Spirit applies it to us, and the Holy Spirit speaks to us, and the Holy Spirit convicts us and directs us together. This is different than common sense. It's different than making good choices. It's a heart posture toward God that's open to him guiding us as we walk this journey of faith. At the same time, acknowledging and checking our own agendas, our fears, our ambitions that can sometimes get in the way. There's an author that I love to read, Ruth Haley Barton, in one of her books about discerning God's will. And she wrote it to church leaders about how to discern God's will. But it's applicable to all of us. She encourages, anytime you have a decision to make, whether it's as a family or a church leadership team or just in your own personal life or in your marriage, begin with a prayer of indifference. And she says a prayer of indifference is a prayer that asks the Lord to make us aware of our own expected outcomes and our own agenda and, and 
by the power of the Holy Spirit, get rid of our own agendas, put those over here so that we might hear and see the voice of God and the face of God. That's what we're called to do. And I think that's a powerful application of this passage. Let me pray to that end for us. God, we want to be a people that hear your voice. And yes, we're people of the word. And we're not going to back down from being people of the word. But we also wanna hear your voice. We want to listen when the Holy Spirit convicts us. Listen when the Holy Spirit prompts us. Listen when the Holy Spirit guides us. And help us as a community to help one another that we hear the voice of God. And help us to, to be knowledgeable and aware of how our own preferences and brokenness can get in the way and can muddle that message. But most of all, based on this passage, we are so thankful that we don't have to worry about how getting it wrong will mess up your plan. Because as we follow you as a church, as we follow you in our marriages, in our families, in our personal lives, we pray above all that your will will be done and that you will use us as a church and as Christians to accomplish that in Christ's name. Amen.